Welcome to the LSQ Podcast. Our church began in April of 2017, and our vision is to joyfully live as reflections of God's love together in the city. This podcast will primarily feature sermons from Sunday worship and the occasional bonus content. We hope you'll subscribe. Scripture reading today is from the book of Daniel, chapter 3, verses 13 through 30. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of God you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command, and were willing to give up their lives rather than to than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces, and the houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Amen. Thank you, Sophie. Good morning, and welcome again to Redeemer Lincoln Square. During this Advent season, we have been, leading up to Christmas, uh, looking at various Old Testament texts that show us 
the nature of who Jesus is as we anticipate his arrival at Christmas. I think a lot of us are anticipating the arrival of some free time. We're anticipating the arrival of uh, maybe family members. That's, for some of you, that's pro. For some of you, that's a con. Uh, I think we, we tend to anticipate the arrival of many things, but I would argue we probably don't do enough to think through the implications and the arrival and the importance of Christmas. And therefore, that's why we've been going through these texts. Now, a lot of folks, even Sophie said a picture, she goes, this is not a traditional Christmas passage. <laughs> and, a lot, and, I'm, and the answer to that is, yes, you're right. Most people don't go to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to look at, the, at Advent, but we are. And so what I want to do today is I want to look at this passage in three parts. We're going to look at the problem of trust, the person in the fire, and then the possibility of being fireproof. Let's look at the problem of trust, the person in the fire, and then the possibility of being fireproof. So first, the problem of trust. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but right now, the World Cup final is happening. Um, there's a scene, by the way, when I was a kid, I used to watch uh, The Simpsons, and the Reverend Lovejoy, one time there was a scene where uh, Homer shows up to church, and it's like just him, not, not many other people are there, and he goes, well, I'm glad some people didn't actually uh, stay home to watch the Super Bowl, and Homer goes, the Super Bowl, and runs out. So hopefully, <laughs> hopefully nobody does that here. Yesterday, Morocco actually uh, finished fourth place in all the World Cup. It was, a, it was a pretty big deal. And the reason why they, how they got there was even weeks ago, they were winning against teams they shouldn't have won against. Uh, for instance, they, they won against perennial World Cup powerhouse Spain in penalty kicks. And if you don't know anything about soccer, here's how a penalty kick works, is uh, 12 yards away, you put the ball down, and it's, and it's you and the goalie, and you have to try to get it in. And, you know, you can kick it to the left, but then the goalie can dive left, or you can kick it to the right, and the goalie can dive right. And I didn't know this, but I read this in an article uh, just a couple weeks ago, that the, statistically, the best place to kick the ball on a penalty kick is right down the middle. And the reason why is because goalies tend to dive to the left or dive to the right. And the reason why I do that is I can imagine there's nothing probably more shameful, there's nothing more humiliating than if you are as a goalie on, the, on the, the biggest stage of the world, you're standing there and the ball whizzes by the right or the left and you don't move. And so there's incredible pressure. There's incredible um, uh, shame if you stay. There's incredible pressure and trust for you to have to go to the left or to the right. But I don't know if you know this as well, the, uh, at the same time, the penalty kick that's taken the least is kicking it right down the middle. Even though it's statistically the best place to go, it's also the place where they kick it the least. And the reason why for that is as a professional footballer, there's a lot of shame that if you just kick it down the middle and the goalie stays there and you didn't really do anything, everybody's like, well, aren't you supposed to like put it in like a corner somewhere? You're supposed to show your ability. And so there's incredible pressure for the kicker to actually go to the left or to the right as well. And so go back to the game. Morocco, it, the, everything's on the line. They can win if they, if they get the penalty kick. The individual lines up and kicks it very softly right down the middle. Goalie flies to the left or the right, and they win. And as I watched that, I had to marvel. I had to say to myself, oh my goodness, can you imagine the, the trust this person had to have to be able to line up and say, you know what? In his head, he said, I'm just going to kick it right down the middle. And I know, it, you know, I, I could be the laughing stock of my country, but I'm going to do it anyway. The trust that he had, and it made me wonder, 
How many of us make our decisions day in and day out out of a fear of failure? How many of us don't have the trust in, uh, in the world, in others, in God, that we're going to be provided for, and we're making decisions right now because we don't trust, because we don't, we're not sure we're going to be provided for? I would argue that uh, the word faith that's used, it's thrown around in churches a lot. It's a spiritual word, but it really just means trust. We spiritualize it. At the end of the day, tr- faith is just trust, and everybody's trusting in something. And I would argue a lot of folks, even people who call themselves Christians, it's hard for us to trust God. And let me try to uh, give you two main reasons why it's hard for us to trust God these days. Number one, the first reason why you don't trust God is because you're, and this is, you know, kind of simple, it's because we're trusting something else. Go to our passage here, and in the book of Daniel, the Israelites had been taken away to Babylon. And this is what Babylonians did, is that they would uh, conquer a people, and then they would take a subset of them and bring them to Babylon. And so there was actually many different cultures and religions and different conquered people here. And Nebuchadnezzar tried to rule these people, but how could you get the loyalty and get the, the fidelity that you needed uh, with these diverse people groups? And what Nebuchadnezzar did was he came up with a decree. He said this. He said, hey, you can have your uh, individual uh, religion. You can have your private religion as long as you publicly bow down every once in a while to this 90-foot gold statue. So he was saying, hey, this this was, by the way, incredibly progressive at the time. You can hold your gods, you can hold your own views, as long as every once in a while this public uh, statue just bow down to it every once in a while. And and then, um, you know, everybody will accept you as a Babylonian. Now today, there's no 90-foot statues that are hanging around uh, in New York City. But there are, I would argue, cultural narratives that we are, are, are statues that we are asked to bow down to. And I think a lot of folks do uh, bow down to them, not knowing what they are. Let me, give, let me show you a couple of them. Uh, statue number one. Here's a statue. Be true to yourself. Be true to yourself. Uh, look at your innermost desires, and um, you need to choose your identity to live in line with that. I think culturally right now, everybody in public, we all agree that we should be true to ourselves and choose our identity. Now, what we don't realize is this is creating so much anxiety. It's creating so much uh, angst because we're wondering, have we chosen the right identity? Have I chosen my vocational identity rightly? Have I chosen my, the, the lover identity rightly? Have I chosen my personality identity? And we're constantly trying to, like, like a jacket, putting on different types of identities, wondering if it's enough. But that is an assumed cultural statue. Number two, another cultural statue. Uh, you need to pursue, for your own happiness, freedom. And by the way, this is a, this is a close one to Americans. Americans love, hey, what's wrong with freedom? Well, the problem with freedom, the idea of freedom from all constraints is very problematic because uh, a fish free from all constraints dies as it gets out of the water. Just like you, free from all constraints, if you don't exercise, if you don't sleep, you'll die too. In other words, we know somehow, we know we're supposed to be bound to some things. But that's why that phrase, be free from all things, doesn't quite work. It's not about being free from all constraints. The question is, what are the right constraints that you should be bound to? A statue number two, though, that we still bow down to. Here's another one. Third statue that I uh, have said before and is common. You will be most happy if you just follow your heart. This is in every, by the way, Disney princess movie. This is in every motivational speech. 
I've seen friends. I've talked to friends. And you know what? I just, want, I just want you to be able to follow your heart. And whatever your heart takes you, it will never lead you astray. And, of course, that sounds nice. But I think there's also a lot of people who have followed their hearts. And it's not taking them to the right place. And so you, when, you, when you tease it out, you can see the problem of it, but then it's still a cultural value that we live by that we think that uh, if we do, it'll lead to goodness and happiness and, and um, you know, well-being. And this is why I found it fascinating when we, in our culture, a lot of people say, I don't believe in faith, I don't believe in anything. And yet we have these cultural assumptions that uh, you can't prove that are clearly belief systems that we've sort of absorbed as our, on our own that we're following. And that's why I would argue there's a lot of Christians that think, hey, I believe in Jesus, I believe in Christianity, but they also believe these cultural values. And I would argue holding them together, don't, they do not work. You cannot believe in Christianity and believe follow your heart. You can't believe in Christianity and say, I need to be free from all constraints. You can't say, I believe in Christianity and I get to choose my own identity, not one that actually God has given us. And I think that's wh- uh, why uh, we have a hard time trusting, because we're trusting something else. Number one. Number two, the second reason we don't trust God is not just that we're trusting something else, it's that we don't believe in his goodness. Look at our text. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I think in the climax of the entire passage, this is verse 17, they say this, hey, if we're thrown into the burning furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us, and he will deliver us. And then in verse 18, but even if he does not, and by the way, in Hebrew, uh, it's even stronger. It's but if not which is a great way, a great phrase. But if not, we will not, uh, we want you to know that we will not serve your gods, is what he says. And I think you need to hear the trust in that statement. It's like we know, we trust that he's going to deliver us, but even if he does not, we're not going to bow down. And I think that a lot of folks, I've heard a lot of folks as a pastor, they say this, I trusted God, but then he didn't come through. I believed in God, but then, uh, look how my life went. And I don't think people realize when they say those phrases, they're actually, when they say, I believed in God, but he didn't come through, which, when that little part, he didn't come through, that's actually your functional God. When you say, I, he didn't come through, what you're really saying is, I believed in God for what he would give me, but not necessarily what he is. And so I, I, I find it fascinating that these guys, they're like this, hey, we know God can save us from death. We know that he could save us from death, but they don't presume that they know if he will in any given moment or in any given space. And, I, and I, it makes me wonder this whole past week, I've been saying, how can you have trust like this? Because they trusted somehow in this life or in the next that they would be provided for. In other words, they trusted his goodness. And I would argue this is probably our biggest problem today. Your biggest problem is not your bank account, it's not your marital status. It's not your family relationships. It's not those people that you feel like that are keeping you down. No, our biggest problem right now is that we don't trust God's goodness. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response or Q&R after worship on Sundays. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastoral team and other members of our church community. If you have a question, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us at Q&R on a Sunday morning. And now, back to this week's sermon. 
And by the way, this began in the garden, right? In the garden, you had Adam and Eve and God. And at some point, at some place, they said, you know what? I don't think God's going to give me what I think I need. And so they went off and they said, we have to actually, therefore, live our lives. And we have to get what I need to get. I need to take what he's not going to give. We know if God is going to give, if he's not going to give, I'm going to have to take it. And so these people said, but if not, what we do is we do this. We say, hey, here's plan A, but if God's not going to give it, here's plan B and C and D and E, and these are things that I have to do on my own. And I would argue, therefore, that's a sign that we don't trust his goodness. Friends, I don't think you recognize this. You think what's keeping you up at night is your job? It's actually you don't trust his goodness. You think what's keeping you up right now is your inability to forgive that person? You think what's keeping you up right now is uh, at some level uh, things that you can't let go? I think there's, there's things that our mind stresses us out, but what we don't realize is the thing beneath that thing is that we don't actually trust his goodness in that moment and in that space and in, in, in the thing that is bothering us. It's ultimately his goodness. And I think that's, that's why we say this. That's why we say, you know what? Maybe this political ideology over here, if I put myself in this political ideology, that might save me. Maybe if I put myself in this addiction, that might numb me enough from the pain. And let me give you another cultural value. Here's another one. Our culture says this. You'll be most happy if you get to do what you want, wherever you want, with whomever you want, with your body. I know marriages have broken up this way. People have stayed out of marriage for this reason. Because people are basically saying to themselves, I will be most happy if I get to do what I want, wherever I want, with whomever I want, with my body. And I was thinking about this this, this week. You know, dictators and tyrants have been able to do that for centuries, haven't they? In their little local sphere, they've gotten to do what they want, wherever they want, with whomever they want, with their bodies. And I haven't read very many happy endings for, for those people. And yet, our culture does tell us this. They, they were, and, I, and I would argue, friends, don't believe the lie. Don't believe if, if you can be just the most free, if you could just choose your identity, if you could just follow your heart, that then you'll be dot, dot, dot happy. That's not trusting. Not only is it not trusting God, not only is it not trusting God's goodness, it's trusting in something else that won't work and can't save and can't deliver. Friends, I actually think you can sit here today and call yourself a Christian, and I think you can believe in him, but still not trust him. And I know, I know that for a fact because I believe that you can hear about his goodness but not trust in his goodness. It's when we're looking into the areas of our life that he hasn't provided in and ignoring the parts of our lives where he has. And I would say that's not trusting his goodness. It's why you and I can't say, but if not, in various situations like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Friends, even if today you can't see his deliverance, that doesn't mean he's not going to deliver. That doesn't, it means that today, even if you don't see his goodness, it doesn't mean he's not good. That he might not save you, or sorry, he might not save what you want, but he's going to save what you need. And I would argue at the same time, uh, he, he uh, might not save your reputation, but he's going to save your soul. He might not save you from suffering, but he will, I promise you, he will save. That's the promise given to us in this text. And that's the promise we see in the arc of biblical history. And so uh, my question to you today, before we move on, is this. What parts of your life are you not trusting him in? What parts of your life are you not really believing his goodness in? And will you? Will you trust him? Will you give 
that part of your life to him. And I would argue then the, the question we have to really ask is, is what is it going to take for us to trust him? And this leads to our second point. Because I think what we need to see here is the person in the fire. That's what it's going to take. Go to verse 25. In verse 25, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he's furious with these guys. He uh, throws them into the fire, all three of them, because they would not do the head nod to the 90-foot golden statue. And it says, suddenly, he says, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. That's in verse 25. Now skip down to verse 28. And Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel to rescue his servants. And then I started saying, you should say this to yourself. Wait a second. Is it a son of the gods or is it an angel? Who do we know in the Bible who has been sent from God and is a son of God at the same time? There is a character in the Bible that shows up over and over and over again. Go to Genesis 16. And in verse 9, it says, the angel of the Lord shows up. And then in verse 13, this angel of the Lord speaks as the Lord at the same time. If you go to Exodus chapter 3, Moses in the burning bush, it says the angel of the Lord calls out to Moses in verse 2. Three verses later in verse 5, it says the Lord spoke. And so constantly you see this individual that both speaks on behalf of God and speaks as God at the same time. And I believe there's only one person in history that's ever claimed to come from God and is God at the same time. No other religion claims this. No other non-religion claims this. Only Christianity says that person is the person of Jesus. And at Christmas time, we love to sing about uh, a famous hymn, O Come, o Come, O Emmanuel. Or we just sung, Hark, uh, Herald Angel Sings, and there's, this, there's a, a verse about Jesus as Emmanuel. That word Emmanuel in Hebrew is just the Hebrew word for God with us. And I think that what we see in this text here is we see Jesus Christ being Emmanuel before Christmas. He, and this is the connection to why we're in this passage. Because what we're seeing here is a early version of Christmas with Jesus being with them in the fire. And I think it creates two important facets. Two, um, I think there's two important things to see here. Number one is this. It break, this breaks our categories. Uh, what do I mean by that? I think most of us think in, bi- in binaries. This is how we think. We think either God could pull us out of suffering. He could, right? He could pull us out of suffering and take the pain away and take the hardship away and take that person away and give us a better life, a new life, uh, a renewed life. Or there's only option B. He leaves us and abandons us in suffering. We think he's leaving us here to rot. He's forgotten us. He's forsaken us. He's leaving us. And we think those are the only two possibilities. And yet this text, I think, is a loud proclamation to say, uh, 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 there is an option C. And the option C is that he enters into the suffering with you. That he doesn't take you necessarily out of it, but he doesn't necessarily leave you in it unto yourself. He moves in with you in your suffering. And I think he's present with our suffering. And no other God, by the way, saves this way. Every other religion says this. If you follow the law, if you do everything right, you go this, this, and this, and this, then you won't have suffering. 
which, by the way, I think is a powerful reason why other religions don't actually work, because we know how many instances of people living good lives, being good people, and then they still suffer. And when people, by the way, say, oh, well, doesn't Christianity do that too? Well, Chris, the core of Christianity is a man, Jesus, who does everything perfectly. He's the most good, and yet he suffered terribly. So it, Christianity can't be saying that. And yet non-religious people, a lot of my friends that I grew up with here in New York, would say, well, the suffering, you, just, you know, it's just random. You can't help it. You're just stuck in it. That's just the way it is. And Christianity says neither one of those. You're not abandoned to it. You're not necessarily going to be taken out of it. He comes into it with you. Because therefore, we have a God with us. And that you'll never face it alone. And he is not distant. And this, this breaks our categories. That's the first thing we see here. Now, secondly, the second thing that we see here is it frees us. I think this is important. Why? Because I think a lot of folks say, that's nice that he sits here in it with us, but can he do something about it, please? And then if you look in our text, he, by showing up with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it leads to their suffering to end. They get out of the furnace. And it looks like it doesn't cost them anything, does it? And yet this is where you need to have the, the full arc of redemptive history. If you go to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is there, and he's praying to the Lord, and what does he say? He says, Lord, let this cup pass from me. Lord, let this, let this, the suffering that I can see coming on the horizon, let it go away. And what ends up happening is it doesn't. And we've to, we're told a little bit later on that Jesus, maybe because of the hotness in his heart, he starts sweating blood, and he says that he's in agony. Which, by the way, if you think about it, those are the two things that happen when you're actually being burnt up. Jesus Christ's blood was boiling in the garden, there, all the signs of fire and furnaceness was happening with him, with the sweat and the blood and the agony. Because it somehow he knew as his hour was drawing nigh that that furnace, the real furnace that he was going to enter into, was coming. And it was going to make this furnace that we just saw here feel like a cool breeze in, in uh, uh, comparison. Because the real furnace that he was going into was the white-hot coals of death. And it destroyed him in the garden. And friends, that is why he could enter, not just this furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but why he can enter into your furnace as well. And by the way, this is the core of Christianity. How do you know his goodness? How will you know he's actually a good? You will know he's good to the degree, not just that, he's, that you see him in the furnaces of your life, but that you also see that he went into the ultimate furnace of reality for you. And to the degree that you can see that, to the degree that you actually hold that into your own life, that you meditate on it, that you hourly have this relationship with him, will you see his goodness? In, fr in fact, when you say, I don't believe in God's goodness, at the end of the day, what you're really saying is, I don't see Jesus going into the furnace for me. But that's what we have here. And that's going to be our daily battle to declare him as Lord and not the other things that we might be trusting in. The daily battle is to see his goodness and not bow down to the other statues of culture that might be in our life. If Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could say, I believe in the goodness of God, even though all they saw was the ark of God in the Old Testament. If, that's, if, he, if it's possible to do that from just the Old Testament Bible, how much more could we see God's goodness through the life and death of Jesus Christ on the cross for us? That's what we have here. The person in the fire 
is the key to seeing God's goodness. And my question to you is, is will you see it? Or are you going to keep ignoring it? People go, I don't see how God loves me. I don't see how God's good. Because we're ignoring the goodness that's before us. We're distancing ourselves from it. See the person in the fire, number two. Now lastly, last point. <clears throat> the possibility of being fireproof. How do you get this fireproofness in your life? I think this is important. Notice when Jesus saves Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fire, um, they're still not alive today, are they? What that means then is that they were, the miracle was they protected them from the fire in that moment, but they weren't protected necessarily from death in general. They eventually did die, which means as miraculous as that is, the, mira- the miracle of Christmas is actually even more miraculous because what's happening there is not just being physically fireproof, but being made cosmically and spiritually fireproof. I'll put it this way. What could be more impactful than being, or most, what's better than being physically fireproof? It's being spiritually and cosmically fireproof. And that's what we find in the incarnation, is that we have cosmic fireproofness from death itself. And the access to that is simple faith and trust. And so to end, I want to ask you this question. Do you have this fireproof faith? Is this fireproof faith in you? And let me give you two quick implications, ways that you might know if you have this in your life. Number one, rest. Look at verse 26 again. I think this is fun. Nebuchadnezzar says, come on out. Not once, twice. Come out, come here. It's almost like he has to ask them to come out. They're so at rest and so at peace in their space in the furnace that they don't feel the need to come out necessarily. And so I, I find it fascinating that if Jesus saves us from the ultimate furnace, then you might not know how your life is going to go today. You might not necessarily know how it's going to end, but you can know that he will provide for you in this life or the next. And that means rest. You don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to earn his love. You don't have to do this. If he didn't abandon you on the cross, he is not going to abandon you now either. And so friends, rest. All worry, all struggle, all pain, those are real, but they're not going to be forever. Your enemies will not have the last word. Your body won't always be this way. You won't always have that pain in your heart, and that means you can rest. You can sleep soundly. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew that they were going to be delivered. They didn't know how, they didn't know when, they didn't know where, but it was going to happen. And that means right now, even if it looks like he isn't, he is. Even if it looks like he can't, he can. Even if it looks like he won't, he will. That's what we see here. Even when we don't know why is something happening, it doesn't mean that he isn't going to love us because we have the proof in Jesus. And so the question is, is will you rest? And by the way, let me just, let me just make a little side point. This doesn't mean give up. I think New Yorkers, when they sometimes hear rest, we're so... We're so uh, twisted, we think rest means we don't care anymore. No, I would actually argue if you could rest in your everyday life, you could actually work more because you're not working for your own salvation. You're working just because out of the benefit and love and care that's been given to you because you've been fireproof from real death. You're going to still be singed friends in this life. You're still going to get toasted. You're still going to get burned by friends and other individuals. But this is saying you're never going to be abandoned. You're never going to be fully burned. Rest. And here's the thing, by the way, another side point. 
if you try to zoom out right now and say, how's my life going to go for in five years or 10 years or 15 years? What this is saying to us is God does not promise to give us grace to face every possible outcome of how your life may go in the future. That's impossible. He gives you enough grace to handle today, but only today only. This is really important. That, in other words, he's in our daily lives, in our daily fires, but he's not giving you in, insight into the possible fires of your future life. And so when we worry about that, you're not relying on his grace. He's given you enough grace to handle today. These men were given enough grace to handle the fire before them, and that's what's being offered to you too. Hold on to that grace for, for you. Rest in that, number one. Lastly, last implication, live changed lives. Notice verse 29, and I, it's hard for me not to laugh about this verse. And I never thought, saw this before, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he sees this great miracle, and what does he do? He says, anybody who says anything against this God, I'm going to cut them up into pieces, and their houses will be turned into piles of rubble. And it's, it's almost com comic. It's, it's, it's a comedic thing. Because you, clearly you're like, this guy doesn't get it, right? That he sees this miracle, but he's not changed by this miracle. But which, by the way, one of the reasons why I think the reason why God doesn't give you more miracles is because you're not changed by miracles. You're changed by grace. This man, before the miracle of the furnace, is ruthless and murderous. He's like, you know, you know bow down to my statue, I'm going to kill you. And then after the miracle, he is ruthless and murderous. I'm going to kill you. Because why? He's not changed. He's never tasted grace. Only if you taste grace can you be changed. And how do you know that you live changed lives? Just live out what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said. Four words. God will save us. That's the sign of grace in your life. I mean, what, look, God. God, if you trust in God, that means you're not trusting anything else. No other cultural narrative. Will. He can. He could. He will. He will. I don't know if you know when or where or how, but he will. God will save. He will save you. Jesus Christ went into the ultimate furnace of your life, and so that you can and I can deal with the relative furnaces of our lives. And if you have that, if you know that, that lets you be able to live out this grace. And then lastly, us. It's not just you. It's not your individuality. It's us, you and I, doing this together. God will save us. That's living a changed life. Uh, poet George MacDonald, he wrote this. He said this. He said, No words can express how much the world owes to sorrow. Most of the Psalms were born in a wilderness. Most of the epistles were written in prison. The greatest thought of the greatest thinkers have all passed through fire. The greatest poets have learned in suffering what they were taught in song. And what I love about that, that bit is this. Knowing that this is in our life, Fires no longer can kill, they can only refine. See, George, George MacDonald said that the epistles, the psalms, all the greatest thought happened through suffering. In fact, if you don't have suffering in your life, I would argue you're not going to have the ability to care and love and serve others because you're not going to know what they're going through. But if you have suffering, if you have this in your life, now like raw gold that goes into a fire, you don't burn up. All that burns up is all the impurities, but you can come out refined and beautiful and shining and able to love and serve and care for other people. That's what you have now in him. Trust him, turn to him, love him. See his goodness, see his grace, live changed lives, rest in that.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, wow. You are in the furnaces of our life, but your goodness is most seen when we see that you went into the ultimate furnace for our life. Father, I pray nobody in this room ever says again we don't see your goodness. I think we do that when we don't see how you might be acting and being in our everyday lives. But Father, what we have here, what we have among us is your goodness. Turn our hearts towards you. Help us not to be distracted from the very men. We look at the parts where we feel like you haven't delivered us, but but like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we know you can, we know you will, but if not, we will not turn because we know one day, come that day, we will be delivered, we will be loved, we will be cared for. So we pray that we will rest, we will wait, we will stay until that day. We praise things in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We pray that it's a helpful resource as you process aspects of Christianity and grow in your faith. To learn more about our church, including details about Sunday worship, check out our website at RedeemerLSQ.com.